Well, over the past several weeks, we've been studying the book of Matthew, the first of four canonical gospels in the order in which they appear for us in the New Testament. And although the gospel of Mark was likely to be the first written, it's fitting that Matthew be the gospel with which the New Testament begins. This is because it's the most Hebraic of the four Gospels and thus forms a fitting bridge with the Old Testament. And as Keith noted at the beginning of this series on Matthew, Matthew begins the New Testament with a genealogy that traced the lineage of Jesus back to Abraham through King David and the Hebrew kings who came in his wake. This is a very Jewish way to introduce Jesus, who is after all the long awaited Messiah a royal son of David through his non-biological father, Joseph. And so in the first three chapters of Matthew, we have seen time and again how Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises made about the Messiah, his birth in Bethlehem. And most recently, as we saw last week in the account of Jesus's baptism, him being called my son by God, which clearly recalls Psalm 2, probably the most explicitly messianic psalm in the Old Testament. Matthew is also an apt beginning of the New Testament because it considers the ministry of John the Baptist, who this gospel identifies with the Old Testament prophet Elijah, and whose appearance as a precursor to the manifestation of God's kingdom is mentioned in the very last chapter of the Old Testament. And even more telling for those who are familiar with the structure of the gospel of Matthew, this gospel echoes the Pentateuch or the Torah of the Old Testament, also known as the five books of Moses, those five books which are the most central to the Jewish faith. Now, what is the connection between Matthew and the Torah? There are many. But first and most obviously, Matthew contains five main speeches, the first of which we will encounter in a few weeks, Matthew chapter 5, verses 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and four other major blocks of material follow it. Scholars agree that these five discourses are intentionally designed to echo the five books of Moses. And the other connection between Matthew and the Pentateuch is that Matthew portrays Jesus, the giver of those five speeches, as a new Moses. Yes, a new Moses. Recall that in chapter 2 of Matthew, the baby Jesus was hidden away in Egypt in order to avoid the killing of Hebrew baby boys by a murderous king. Sound familiar? Well, of course, the same thing happened to Moses. And like Moses, Jesus makes his way out of Egypt towards the promised land, as Keith reminded us a few weeks ago. And as for our text for today, most scholars see the Moses connection continuing here, where Jesus sojourns in the wilderness for a period marked by the number 40. Now, this number 40, it forges a general connection with the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness. So Jesus embodies Israel as well as Moses. But the connection between Jesus and Moses is more explicit than Jesus and Israel through the reference in Matthew 4, not to 40 years, but to 40 days and 40 nights. Listen to what Exodus 34 verses 27 and following say. Then the Lord said to Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Moses was there with the Lord for 40 days 
and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, end quote. Notice that the tie here between Moses spending 40 days and 40 nights without food and water in relation to the Ten Commandments makes the temptation story an important bit of stage setting for the first of Jesus's books of Moses, the Sermon on the Mount. And further, and further on the Moses connection, it's no coincidence that at the end of the temptation story in Matthew, Jesus is set on the highest of mountains overlooking the kingdoms of the world. This is similar to the experience of Moses, who was perched on Mount Nebo overlooking a lesser land of Canaan. Note that Jesus' purview is global, whereas Moses' was merely Canaanitish. Here, the new and transcendent superior Moses has arrived on the scene in the person of Jesus Christ. The continuity between Jesus and Moses here is important, and it's sometimes misinterpreted in Christian tradition. It is not that the teaching of Jesus replaces that of Moses. Far from it. Jesus affirms the validity of the Mosaic Torah to the letter. No, it is rather that Jesus is one greater than Moses, one who transcends Moses. Moses, or Jesus, is Moses as though Moses were on steroids, as some put it. The connection between Jesus and Moses is related to the ministry of John the Baptist as well. I hear a bit of background is in order. Why was John the Baptist so important in the beginning chapters of the, of the Gospels? Well, clearly he was an important historical figure, but there's more background to it than that. You see, when Moses was coming to the very end of his significant ministry as prophet and leader, Israel began to wonder how they were going to get along without him. Moses was wondering the same. Apparently, God had given it some thought. So in answer to this question, Moses received a prophecy in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that promises the coming of a prophet in the future who would bear the marks of Moses. They would be able to recognize this prophet by his similarity to Moses. And so in Deuteronomy 18, 15, we read, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You shall heed such a prophet, says Moses. And then again in verse 18, God makes this promise to Moses when God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their own people. I will put my words in the mouth of the prophet who shall speak to them everything I have commanded. So from that point on, Israel had been trained to keep a special eye out for a prophet to come who would be like Moses. Now, this, of course, was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. But between Moses and Jesus, there was another prophet who clearly fit the bill. And that prophet was, maybe you're going to say John the Baptist, and if so, you'd be right. But first came Elijah, and then came John the Baptist, who was like Elijah. More clearly than any other Old Testament prophet, Elijah was a prophet like Moses. Think of him, for example, traveling to Mount Sinai after his famous contest with uh, the prophets of Baal and hearing God speak to him in a still small voice on the summit of Mount Sinai, where Moses received the revelation. Now, it might be beginning to sound to you like you need a directory to keep track of who's who here, but I need to add one more figure that I've already intimated, and that's John the Baptist, because he, too, was like Elijah. 
So in other words, when Matthew describes John the Baptist as another Elijah, he's saying, here we go again. Here's another prophet like Moses. Now, that might have meant that uh, the people would identify John the Baptist as the greatest prophet. And so he was, as Jesus himself affirms. But in Matthew and the other Gospels as well, Jesus, John, defers to Jesus, saying, I am not worthy so much as to, under, as to untie the straps of this man's sandal. Well, besides that, Elijah had an immediate successor. Think about this for a minute, because you might not have noticed it before. Elijah had an immediate successor, Elisha, about whom it was said that he would receive a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Now, there's some debate in the Hebrew text about whether it means double or a fraction, but double the portion is the most common interpretation. Now, this helps us to explain why the ministry of Jesus is so closely related to that of John the Baptist. The continuity serves to underscore that Jesus is no less a prophet in the line of Moses than was Elijah and his immediate successor, Elisha. And it's no coincidence that of all the prophetic figures in the Old Testament, Jesus' ministry most resembles that of Elisha. We'll go back to what Marion covered last week in chapter 3, and you'll see the Elisha connection. The two travel, the two, John and Jesus, are on a travel. Um, um, like Elisha, Jesus makes a southward journey and meets John at the Jordan, which Elijah and Elisha had crossed together in 2 Kings chapter 2. In 2 Kings 2.9, we read, And when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what I may do before I'm taken from you. Elijah responded to Elisha, uh, tell me what I may do for you before I'm taken from you. And Elisha said, please let me have a double portion of your spirit. Now, Elijah said that that would be hard, but if Elisha saw Elijah taken away, then it would happen. And so it did. Next, Elisha, just like Elijah and Moses did, Elisha extends a token of his ministry, not a staff like Moses used, but his mantle. And when he extended it over the waters of the Jordan, the waters parted, and Elisha crossed on dry ground, just like Elijah had coming, and just like Moses had across the Reed Sea. No wonder Elijah's former followers were to say of Elisha soon thereafter, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. Notice the emphasis on the spirit here. We saw it last week in the account of the temptation of Jesus, or in the, in the account of Jesus' baptism, sorry. The emphasis on the spirit in relation to Elijah's similarly Moses-like successor. And notice how it was only when Elijah parted the scene that his doubly spirit-endowed successor took over the ministry of his forebear. Soon we shall read in Matthew chapter 4.12 that Jesus' ministry begins with the same marker. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to the Galilee. And as Keith mentioned a few weeks ago, Jesus begins his ministry with the same message as his forebear. Repent, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, you might be asking yourself, why this overview at the beginning of a sermon, primarily on the temptation of Jesus? It might have something to do with the preacher preparing to take over a series on Matthew and wanting to do some background review of himself. But it never hurts to review. 
Besides, I can justify what I'm doing. With Matthew chapter 4, we come to the end of the introduction to the book, as many see it. More importantly, Matthew included what he did in these chapters as a way of orienting us to the Torah-like teachings of Jesus. This orientation to the Torah of Jesus includes, as we have seen, background information on Jesus, the things that we've been reading in chapters 1 to 4, Jesus' lineage, the prophetic anticipation and links to Moses, to Elijah, and by, uh, by way, the link between John the Baptist and Elijah. And as we saw last week as well, the suffering servant of Isaiah as well. But less well known, and I confess that I had to, uh, I learned this for the first time this week in doing my own study, these introductory chapters at times provide a sort of illustrative commentary on the teachings of Jesus. Let me say that again. Matthew chapters 1 to 4 at times provide a sort of illustrative commentary on the teachings of Jesus. Take, for example, today's story of Jesus' temptation. And compare the first temptation and Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6, 31 to 33. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Jesus' response to Satan's first temptation, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, constitutes an example from the life of Jesus of what it might look like to prioritize the kingdom of God to do the Father's will more than worrying about what you're going to have for lunch tomorrow. Jesus forsook food for the sake of the kingdom here. And when at the end of the story, Matthew 4, verse 11, we read, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. We see an illustration of that part of the Seek ye first the kingdom of God verse that ends with, And all these things shall be added unto you. Uh, This is because the angels came at the end of Jesus's trial and ministered to him, which would have included the provision of food. So Jesus sought first the kingdom of God, and all these things were added unto him, an apt illustration of a teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Or compare Jesus's third temptation as recorded in Matthew, in which Jesus refuses to accept Satan's offer of all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. If he, that is Jesus, but bow down and worship Satan. That, and when we read also in, verse, in chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So Jesus' third trial in which he is tempted to, to, uh, to worship Satan is an illustration of Jesus' teaching that you cannot serve God and mammon. And in that third temptation as well, you'll notice that Satan offers the glory of the kingdoms. And most people think that that word for the glory of the kingdoms refers to the wealth of the nations. So there's a direct tie-in to the mammon. So what have we seen of Jesus? We've seen that Jesus embodies and takes up the ministry of different individuals at the beginning of uh, of the Gospel of Matthew as a way of introducing Jesus 
as both the Messiah, the son of David, but also primarily as the new Moses. And so Matthew becomes like the Torah, and Jesus becomes like the new God-like Moses. Uh, we've also seen that Jesus is like Elisha. But actually, Elisha plays second fiddle to another successor of Elijah that's talked about at the end of the book of Malachi. Because Malachi promises in the last chapter of the Old Testament that when Elijah comes, the person who will follow immediately from Elijah is not Elisha, but God. So when Jesus affirms that John the Baptist was Elijah, Jesus is at the same time affirming that he is God incarnate and that with his ministry, that of Jesus Christ, comes the inauguration of God's kingdom. So of all the people that you think of that Jesus fulfills or embodies in the Old Testament, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, the suffering servant of Isaiah, don't forget the most important one of all, God. <laughs> Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament where the eyes of Christian faith are opened to see it. Well, that's by way of review. Let's turn now more briefly to the story of Jesus's temptation itself. And for that, I'll have to move much more quickly than I might otherwise have had to do. For the sake of time, I want us to limit our consideration to the purpose of this passage and also to a short big idea sermon. And uh, Roger and Marion and others who've had uh, preaching classes in the old school know that a big idea sermon is sort of a, a one main idea sermon. So I'm going to come to a point where um, if you don't remember anything else in the sermon, I want you to remember this one question and this one answer. That's the nutshell of a big idea sermon. First, then, the passage. Uh, first, then, the purpose of the story of the temptation. Well, Marion introduced us to the purpose uh, last week, whether we noticed it or not. Marion noted that the words of affirmation from heaven concerning Jesus this is my beloved son, are tantamount to a declaration that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And also that the words that followed, with you I am well pleased, picked up from Isaiah 42.1 and constituted a reference to Jesus as also the suffering servant of Isaiah. It's these two dynamics, the, the, the triumphal Messiah on the one hand, at least the authoritative divine son of God Messiah on the one hand, and the suffering servant of Israel on the other hand, that Satan wants to exploit to his advantage in the story of the temptation of Jesus. Think about it for a minute. There's a certain tension here between these two ideas, a king who has royal authority and who can do whatever he wants, and in this case, a king who can do supernatural things. So that's on the one hand, but on the other hand is the suffering servant Isaiah, a beleaguered victim who suffers vicariously for his people. These two concepts are in tension. So as we come from the story of the baptism of Jesus to the temptation of Jesus, questions that we anticipate are as follows. How will Jesus play out this true pronged ministry? What emphasis will he give to each? Under what circumstances will he play the strong, forceful, royal hand of control and authority? And under what other circumstances might he decide to go the route of humble, suffering, servant-like behavior? The devil wants Jesus to play the royal triumphalist hand when it, when it comes to Jesus' own personal advantage. 
After all, no one wants to suffer needlessly, much less someone with a privileged background like Jesus. <laughs> I mean, think about it. Jesus wasn't spoiled. Um, um, he was entitled to everything, and he had everything at his disposal before he became incarnate as the second person of the Trinity. So now that he's recently become a, a human being, Satan is probably betting on the fact that Jesus is going to have trouble negotiating his limitations and that Satan might be able to trip him up by getting him to use his supernatural powers when God might not want him to. As one scholar put it, the devil is trying to drive a wedge between the newly declared son and his father. The point is that Jesus, when he enters the wilderness experience, enters it as Israel, only unlike Israel, he passes the test. Jesus enters the wilderness experience as Moses and offers a model kind of a leadership. But why would Matthew and God have us rehearse Jesus's temptation in the wilderness? Well, surely it was not to show Israel up as if Jesus were to say, look, this is how you should have done it. You didn't do it right, and I did. Uh -huh. Nothing like that. But what would the point of it be? Well, certainly not to make Israel feel badly or to show off. No, if there is a point to it of this kind, it's that Jesus met the criteria of testing in order to accomplish what was promised Israel if she were successful, namely to possess the land of promise and to enjoy its beauty. My friends, do you see the point? The point of this story in terms of salvation history is that Jesus is here our champion. He does for us what Israel was not able to do, and he brings us into his promised land by his own merits. In other words, in spite of our lack of the ability to pass the test and that of Israel, Jesus did it. And so there is a foreboding here of the fact that Jesus is the one who is able to bring us the promises of the promised land. Now, even in the Old Testament, Israel's reception of bounty was based on God's grace in addition to works, and not because of Israel's merits. But the point is that Jesus succeeded where Israel did not. Kind of reminds you of Ephesians 2.8, which says, By grace are you saved through faith, and not that of yourselves. It's the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. Well, now finally comes my big idea sermon. And it's going to be very short, and here comes the question. I want to pick up on one thing that strikes me as being the most mysterious of all in the story of the temptation of Jesus, and that is this. And I'm prepared to give you a quarter if you can answer it without having heard the rest of the sermon. Generous guy that I am. Why did the Spirit of God lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? You see, the words in the uh, translation that you have it missed the point. It said, now Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. And you might think, well, I'm led by the Spirit. Jesus is led by the Spirit. What's the big deal? But actually, it is the, the Spirit of God brought Jesus into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Well, if you think of an analogy like in World War II, it's like the queen ordering that Churchill be delivered at Hitler's doorstep for 40 days and 40 nights. You know, you just sort of think, what is the point of that? What possible benefit could accrue? I mean, we can see the devil's motive to sabotage Jesus and his ministry, 
But what possible reason could God have for allowing his son to be tempted? Well, we ask the same question of ourselves, I think, don't we? Why is God allowing me to go through this difficult time? Why is he making it so hard for me right now? Well, ultimately, I bet there are often times when you don't know, just like I don't know. But you might comfort yourselves like passages from the one uh, from Deuteronomy 8, a chapter from which Jesus cites in his own temptation, which in verse 5 reads, Know then in your heart that as a father disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. My friends, I don't know what purpose God might have had for you to endure your trial and suffering right now, but I do know that there's a purpose for it. And seeing a purpose in the case of Jesus, as I propose we might do for a few minutes just now, I hope will help you in your struggle to believe that God can have a significant purpose out of the rotten things that are happening to you, perhaps even this week. Consider the second temptation. Recall that the challenge for Jesus is implied by the context was when to withhold the temptation to take the supernatural triumphalist way out and when to go the route of the suffering servant. Satan has lifted him up high on the temple. Now, where, what is the purpose of the temple? The temple is a place of sacrifice, right? The penny will drop in a minute, I trust. And what does Satan say while Jesus is lifted high up on this place of sacrifice? Verse 6, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. I've asked Roger to read Matthew chapter 27, verses 39 to 43, which record the testimony of those on the cross and what they said to Jesus. Roger, have you got it? Yep. Matthew 27, starting from verse 39. Sorry, you got it? And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is a king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him he trusts in god let god deliver him now if he desires him for he said i am the son of god thanks be to god my friends these are the exact same words that satan used to try to get jesus to come down from the place of sacrifice in the account of the temptation Moreover, Jesus, or moreover, when Satan is trying to tempt Jesus to come down, he cites Psalm 91, and Satan picks up on that passage that talks about, oh, you know, if, if you come down from there, it promises in the Old Testament that his angels will come and prevent your foot from even stumbling. You remember Jesus in the garden? One of the followers of Jesus, we're told in Matthew, just one of the followers of Jesus, took out a sword and cut off the ear of a certain of the high priest. And Jesus says in 2653, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? 
But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? My friends, do you see what purpose God had? At the same time, Satan thought he was getting the upper hand on the servant of the Lord. God was using Satan's work to make Jesus all the more prepared for the work that God had for him to do. In the first temptation, Jesus is tempted to turn stones into bread. Jesus refuses, quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, which says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by everything or every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There's possibly another echo in the suffering of Christ. On the cross, according to Matthew 27, 34, Jesus is offered wine mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused. The parallel is far less clear with the second temptation, not the least because unlike this first temptation, Jesus is offered um, wine mixed with gall rather than being offered bread. In any event, having resisted the temptation to alleviate his suffering by consuming food or drink, Jesus can only have been helped to resist the same temptation on the cross. After the third temptation, you remember, if you look at our passage, Jesus says, be gone, Satan. Did Jesus also say that to someone who was tempting him not to go the route of suffering? Yes. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 23, Jesus says these same words to Simon Peter. Be gone behind me, Satan. And what of the earlier instance in temptation three, when the devil offers Jesus worldly wealth or dominion, an offer made independently of what God might call Jesus to do? You see, my friends, again, at the same time, Satan thought he was getting the upper hand on the servant of the Lord. God was working through Satan to make Jesus' glorious declaration after his death and resurrection all the more sweet and secure. I'm referring to those triumphal words of Jesus at the end of the gospel, which in fact summarize the message of the gospel in many ways. All authority on heaven and earth has now been given to me. Now that I've suffered, now that I've died, now that I have been resurrected. And then he says to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. My friends, how might we apply this? Let's begin with ourselves and then end on a doxological note. First, and personally, seeing here so clearly that God had good reason to allow Jesus to be tested, I hope, gives us hope and faith that he has a similar reason why he allows us to undergo the same. We don't know what that reason is. But we, by reading and seeing the biography of Jesus and the way the story ended, we can have trust that I, I don't know why God is allowing this to happen, but there must be a reason. For this reason, we might be able to say with more confidence than ever what James wrote in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you encounter various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and lack nothing. The story is told of uh, a, 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 a king who had a friend. And the king used to like to hunt with a friend, and the friend was an annoying optimist. No matter what bad thing happened, the king's friend always said, oh, it's going to be fine. It's going to work out all right. And so uh, one day, the king and his friend were out hunting. 
And uh, the king was instructed by his friend, the, the hunter, to hold the gun in a certain way. And when he held his gun and fired, the king lost his thumb through the, uh, through the misfiring. And the king turned to his friend and said, yeah, I bet you can tell me that you've got some good reason for this to happen, right? And the friend was silly enough to say yes. And the king got angry and he threw him in jail. And he said, I've had enough of this optimistic take. There can be no benefit in my having lost my thumb, period. So his friend is sitting in jail. A few months pass by and the king gets the hankering to go hunting again. And when he goes hunting again, he goes further than he should have reached. And he's encountered by a group of cannibals. And these cannibals tie him up and they've got him tied to the stake, ready to put in the stew. When the cannibals notice that he's missing a thumb. And according to these cannibals, it's bad luck if you eat somebody who's not whole. So they let him go. So the king goes back uh, and uh, he goes and he first knocks on the door of the jail sort of thing. And he apologized to his friend. And he said, you know, I hate to say this, but you were right. There was a purpose for my thumb having been cut off. But I want to apologize for having thrown you into jail. That was a really bad mistake. And of course, the friend to the character says, no, it was a good thing you threw me in jail. And the king says, oh boy, for one thing, you're consistent. Tell me what it is. And the guy says, well, if I hadn't been in jail, I would have been hunting with you and my thumb hasn't been cut off and I would have been eaten by the cannibals. Well, you see, the point of the story is that despite things seeming impossible and sometimes us not understanding why we're allowed to go through the things that we're allowed to go through, God is able to work all things together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. So my friends, I want you to take heart from the fact that God had a purpose for testing Jesus, that if you persevere in the trials and temptations and tests that God puts in your way, chances are it's going to be better for you in the end and you're going to advance the kingdom of God in a marvelous way in the way in which, in some way, akin, well, not akin to the way in which the Lord did, but in some significant way. It says in, and with this, I'm in my last paragraph, I, I guarantee you. Uh, it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So my friend, take heart and ask for God's grace to help you resist the trials and temptations, which he, for reasons of his own, might be allowing you to endure. And then second and most significantly, let's end on a doxological note. My friends, ponder the magnitude of difficulty, the magnitude of difficulty that God would ordain that his son, Jesus, would have to practice for the cross. In a nutshell, unwittingly, God turned Satan into the sergeant of his boot camp. And all the while Satan was thinking he was getting an upper hand on the situation, God was using it for his own purposes. Of all beings, how would God ordain that of all people, Jesus ought to undergo a dress rehearsal for his passion on the cross? I looked up on the internet what are supposed to be the most difficult things in the world to do. And one of them was to apologize. Um, uh, others were um, uh, 
to, uh, to be the master of your own time. And as I read the list, I was really quite unimpressed. And I thought, one of the most difficult things that has to be is to be able to endure suffering when you're able to stop it. I mean, that's, that's the agony of torture, right? We'll stop putting bamboo under your fingernails if you simply tell us who your buddies are. And so if you go through this agony, not only of the pain, but of knowing that if I simply betray, then it'll all be over. My friends, to, to put a twist on the old expression, Jesus did not die with one hand tied behind his back, although in a sense that was true. It's more like he died with two hands behind his back on the cross. Or yet again, it was more like he had two hands and two feet nailed to the cross when he could have done something about it. As the hymn writer says, he could have called 10,000 angels, but he died there alone for you and for me. Let us thank him. Let us adore him. Let us fall at his nail-pierced feet and worship him as Lord and Savior. Amen.